reading today comes from Exodus chapter 32, verse 1, all the way to chapter 33, to verse 6. I'm reading a version of New International uh, Version. The Golden Calf. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing, and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol, casting the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in reverie. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. Then Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abram, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disasters he had threatened. Moses turned and went down on the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, this is not the sound of victory. It is not the sound of defeat. It is the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, his anger burned and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burned it in the fire, 
Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Do not be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. So I told them, whoever has any gold jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire. Out came the calf. Moses saw that the people were running wild and that Aaron had let them get out of control and so become a laughingstock to their enemies. So he stood at the entrance to the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites rallied to him. Then he said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Each man strap a sword to his side, go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. Levites did what Moses commanded. And that day, about 3,000 of the people died. Then Moses said, You have been set apart to the Lord today, for you were against your own sons and brothers, and he has blessed you this day. The next day, Moses said to the people, You have committed a great sin, but now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses went back to the Lord and said, Oh, what a great sin these people have committed. They have made themselves gods of gold. But now, please, forgive their sin. But if not, then blot me out of the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I spoke of. And my angel will go before you. However, when the time comes for me to punish, I will punish them for their sin. And the Lord struck the people with a plague because of what they did with the calf Aaron had made. Then the Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people you brought up out of Egypt, and go up to the, go up to the land I promised on oath to Abram, Isaac, and Jacob saying, I will give it to your descendants. I will send an angel before you and drive out of Canaanites, Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Hevites, and Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with the milk and honey, but I will not go with you because you are a stiff-necked people and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard these distressing words, they began to mourn, and no one put on any ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Tell the Israelites, you are stiff-necked people. If I were to go with you, even for a moment, I might destroy you. Now take off your ornaments, and I will decide what to do with you. So the Israelites stripped off their ornaments at Mount Horeb. <coughs> that long passage so superbly we are going to pray before we look at this devastating passage shall we pray Lord 
help us to learn from the mistakes of the Israelites. Speak to us today. Help us to see the relevance of this passage. May we leave this building this morning with a new resolve to be faithful to you and not to reshape you in the way we want you to be. Amen. We are at Mount Sinai. I wonder if we can have the photo of the mountain on the screen, please. So Moses has been up the top of the mountain for nearly six weeks, and the Israelites are getting fidgety. Did you notice, we don't know what's happened to this fellow, Moses, that's, not a, that's a bit of a derogatory term they used towards him. Is it a bother to you that the God that we worship is invisible? You can't see him. Is it a bother to you that when you pray, where is this God that's listening to our prayers? There is always a desire for people to uh, have something visible that they can worship or connect with. And the thrust of this message today has to do with reshaping God in the way we want him. Let's uh, just recap on where we're up to before we look at this passage. Uh, God had rescued his people Israel from slavery in Egypt, and in spectacular fashion they went through the Red Sea, but on dry land. And no sooner had they got to the other side and turned around to look back, and the sea closed over, and in the process killed Pharaoh's crack troops, his best division. And the soldiers were there, washed up on the seashore, dead. They came into the desert where God was calling his people to himself and this was a sort of elopement. God was making his promises to them. They were making their promises to him. He wanted them to be his representatives to the world. He was going to make a great nation of them. And you know the story. They were without water. You can see in the picture it's a pretty desolate place. And... uh, God, the provider, shows Moses which rock to hit and out gushes, not a trickle, but quite a river, sufficient to provide plenty of water for over a million people to drink, as well as their large quantity of animals. And then, of course, they were short of food. You can see it's pretty barren, and the manna came. More than that... There was the visible presence of God in the form of a fire at night time, possibly to ward off animals and to give illumination, and also a pillar of cloud during the day, a tangible representation of God himself. But all of this didn't seem to be enough. How long does it take for followers of God to fall away? Well, in this passage, less than six weeks. I've climbed the top of this mountain twice and St. Catherine's Monastery is just out of shot around to the right. St. Catherine's Monastery was one of the places where one of the oldest copies of our Bible, 
was found. Of course, it's so off the beacon, beaten track that various invaders tended not to bother to come this far south in Sinai, so it's been largely untouched. I've been into the church inside the monastery, and the elaborate ornamentation and the rich rituals and all the artistry were very foreign to me as a a nonconformist. This was a Greek Orthodox setup. But what I did notice was an incredible reverence for God. That is something that we nonconformists perhaps have lost. So Moses is up the top of the mountain. In fact, as Ian told us so eloquently and compellingly last week, no less than seven chapters are devoted to the details of the tabernacle, the structure representing something from heaven that was going to be there traveling with the children of Israel. And much of the five first books of the Bible are devoted to arrangements for worship and how people can come to God. The dilemma is this. Here we have a sinful rabble, uh, a ragged group. Yes, they know they're Israelites, but they're barely a nation that's gelled together yet. And yet God, their holy maker and redeemer, wants to come and live among them. And how can that work, especially in the light of today's passage? And the answer is this, blood covenant. You heard about the tabernacle last week. Let me remind you that every time the priests went into the tabernacle, they could look at the Holy of Holies at the far end, or at least they could see the big curtain behind which was the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence was located or where God said he would meet with his people. But between that and the priests was the altar of sacrifice. So between us and the presence of God, animals are sacrificed, blood is shed. And we know that the animals had to be perfect. They had to be pure. And everything in that tabernacle was dedicated to God by sprinkling with blood. It was a blood covenant. The challenge of a holy God living amongst an unholy people. The good news is, God says, you, I'm going to make you holy because I am holy. And holiness flows out of our relationship with God. The Apostle Paul was very proud of his religious pedigree and efforts, but he realized that actually it amounted to nothing. It, it didn't give him the right standing with God that he longed for. That came through Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. I want us to notice also that in that tabernacle, which was richly ornamented with gold, it's calculated that there were seven tons of gold and silver and bronze in the various artifacts within the tabernacle. The the lampstand itself with its seven branches was made of solid beaten gold and weighed 
75 pounds or thereabouts. Interesting that the gold that should have been given for the tabernacle was given to make this golden calf or bull. Just in passing, the mountain has rounded rock, especially at the top. Now, it's about the same height as Snowdon. Uh, I don't know if any of you have climbed any of the mountains in the Lake District or even in Scotland, but up there the mountains are subject to frost shattering and you get jagged edges of rock. Not so here. It's as if a giant blowtorch has been applied to the top of the mountain with rounded sedimentary rock that appears to have been melted. Well, at least that's consistent with the fire of God coming down on the mountain that the people saw. Indeed, they were so terrified, they said, Moses, you go up and deal with God. We're, we, we don't go anywhere near. The people knew something of the holy presence of God, but sadly, that wasn't enough to hold them back from this idolatry. I want you to come in your mind, if you will, to a town in South India, Mahalabalapuram. My son was there with a scripture union project. It is one of the two centres in India devoted to the manufacture of Hindu gods. And all the people working in the town are stonemasons, masons, chipping away, making Hindu gods, the monkey god and the elephant god being the two most popular amongst the thousands of Hindu gods there are. And if you want to go and order your family god or your, a god for your village, then there is a two-year waiting list. So idolatry is alive and well in our world today. Come with me in your mind's eye, if you will, to a hillside in Nepal, north of India, where I was some years ago, sitting, having my quiet time reading from Scripture, and a young girl emerged from a little shack nearby, carrying a bowl of rice. And she walked along the mountain path, 50 yards or so, to a stone idol, and she placed the bowl of rice in front of this stone idol, which was maybe two feet high, similar to a wayside road mark or borough boundary stone. And there was a large bell next to the idol, and she rang it, and of course it resonated through the valley. Why do you ring a bell when you offer rice to your god? The answer is to wake up the god so that he knows that there is a daily offering to be accepted. I'm sorry to say I was really upset by what I saw. This was obviously a very poor community. They could ill afford to be giving away their hard-earned rice. Did she go back to the family shack knowing that she was in a right relationship with her God? I doubt it. Was it an act of devotion? I doubt it. It was probably an insurance policy to avoid incurring the anger of that so-called God. However, you will tell me that you and I are not subject to idolatry like that. We are far more sophisticated and subtle. But are we subject to idolatry? Can we see the next slide, please? 
And this is Gilbert. Gilbert is a limousine uh, bull, limousine being a, a French breed. He was sold in Carlisle in 2015 for 147,000 pounds by a syndicate of farmers. Why did they want him? Well, because he was the best of his breed and they were keen to have a good bloodline for their heifers and their beef stock. And you can see he's a splendid fellow. So why were the children of Israel keen to have a God that they could worship? And in particular, why was it a a bull calf or a young bull? Well, the bull represents virility, that is reproductive excellence, and it represents brute physical strength. I I had an uncle who was tossed by his bull. He ended up in hospital for his trouble. Uh, Talk about a stiff neck. The neck on a bull is very strong and can uh, do you a mischief. It is thought that the god that uh, Aaron made was probably not uh, akin to the Egyptian God, there is an Egyptian God that's represented by a bull, but it's thought it was probably connected to the Baal worship in Israel, uh, which was the Canaanite religion. Baal, of course, had as his consort Ashtaroth, and the tragedy is that part of that religion was a sex cult, whereby part of the worship involved having sex with the priestesses at the shrines in order to encourage fertility of the land and to ensure good crops for the coming year. And of course, the offspring from those sexual activities were often offered to the god Molech. They were incinerated alive. And of course, this was the reason why God was so keen that the filth, the moral depravity of Canaan was obliterated. And so we come to the uncomfortable aspect of today's passage. Perhaps before we do so, let me remind us from Psalm 135 what scripture has to say about idolatry. This is Psalm 135, verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold made by the hands of men. They have mouths but cannot speak, eyes but cannot see. They have ears but cannot hear, nor is there breath in their mouths. And this is the tragedy of it all. Those who make them will be like them. And so will all who trust in them. Now, a careful reading of our passage suggests that rather than the Israelites inventing a totally new God, they are merely wanting to represent Yahweh as a bull. Because uh, 
uh, Aaron says to them, well, this is the God that brought you up out of Egypt. And they certainly knew who had done that. They wanted to reshape Jehovah to their liking. Uh, There is a convenient reason for doing so because it enables you to behave in the way that your reshaped God permits. We have mentioned the nation of Iran here this morning. Um, I'm sad to say that there is huge sexual immorality underneath Shia Islam. You will be aware that a a good Muslim should have no more than four wives. Uh, The Prophet Muhammad had quite a few more than that. But within Shia Islam, there is this principle of temporary marriage, which enables a man to take as many temporary wives as he wishes for as little as one hour or as long as ten years. And you can read about that in the prayer guide in the section where we are praying for the women in Iran because it it destroys society and it undermines family life. So, sexual misbehaviour can get muddled up with true faith. By their fruits, you will know them. Let's come on now to Moses' response. By the way, um, you've heard me talk about sexual depravity, and you, you say, well, where do you find that in the passage? Well, we read that the people offered their sacrifices on the fest- to the festival to the Lord, as Aaron had announced, and then they got up to play, or they indulged in revelry was the phrase used. Later on in the passage, there is reference to dancing and people running wild. Basically, there was an orgy going on. And sadly, 40 years later, just before the children of Israel were to go into the promised land, something similar happens when Moabite women encourage the Israelites to go and worship the Moabite God. And again, wrong sexual activity took place, I think, Chapter 25 of Numbers covers that account. So the children of Israel don't seem to have learned their lesson. Let's see how Moses responds to this, because God tells Moses what's going on whilst he's still up the mountain. And he stands between God and the people. At this point, God is angry. Did you know that God can get angry? But it's a righteous anger, it's a holy anger, it's the sort of anger that a father would feel if his marriageable daughter is violated by a man. Indignation, injustice. And God's anger is not retributive, it is corrective. He desires to punish, to correct. Now, the analogy can be rather like that of dry rot in a building. I don't know if any of you have experienced dry rot in a building, uh, but there is no cure for dry rot, a fungus which causes wood to crumble and become useless. The only treatment is to cut it out, and indeed several feet either side of whichever piece of timber is so infected. Some people complain that in the Old Testament there is an awful lot of bloodshed 
And how do we reconcile this with the God of love? Another analogy might be that of gangrene in a human body. Do you know what gangrene is? When part of the body actually dies and uh, cannot be restored and the only medical treatment is to remove the limb that is suffering from gangrene in order to save the rest of the body. Otherwise, the entire body would become destroyed. Now, God's judgment is uncomfortable for us. We major on a God of love. I wonder how many of us enjoy listening to the Hallelujah Chorus. I certainly enjoy listening to it every time it comes up on Classic FM, which it does most weeks, if not most days. Let's remember that that mighty celebration, which is found, of course, at the end of the book of Revelation, is praise to God for judging the earth and judging evil. There can be no justice if wrong is not punished. What was the punishment in today's story? Well, 3,000 people lost their lives. They were actually killed by the priests because of their wild behavior, which could so easily infect the entire Israelite community. And then uh, the, the chapter 32 finishes with God sending a plague. We are not told how many people died in that plague. It would have been a significant number. But there is a third punishment as well, and that comes to light in the first few verses of chapter 33, where God says, I am not going to travel with you to the promised land. If I did, I might destroy you on the way. My angel will travel with you instead. So I think we learn from this that God is too holy to turn the blind eye to wrong. Indeed, it would destroy him. One little illustration of this, when Jesus hung on the cross as our perfect sacrifice, he became sin for us, he became cursed for us, he took the punishment that we deserved. The, uh, the sky went dark. There was possibly a total solar eclipse. We don't know, but whatever it was, there was darkness on the face of the earth for three hours, as if God in heaven could not dare look on his son who had become sin. <laughs> the, the good news is, though, that just like that heavy curtain at the back of the temple separating this holy God from the priests, ordinary people weren't even allowed inside the tabernacle. Uh, that heavy curtain separating off the Holy of Holies in what was to become the temple after the tabernacle had been replaced by a temple. At the moment when Jesus died, something incredible happened. That thick curtain was torn from top to bottom, wasn't it? You know the story. As if some divine hand had ripped the whole thing apart. And for the first time in the history of the cosmos, people had access into the very presence of a holy God. 
because of the effectiveness of what Jesus had done for us. Isn't that good news for us all? I'll just pause for a moment whilst I catch up with my notes. And I think we need to um, say, well, what does this, how does this apply to us? Let's learn from Moses' beautiful intercession. He stands between God, who's ready to wipe out the people, and those who've done wrong. And he says, turn aside your anger. Anger. What will the Egyptians think if you fail to take your children that you have called out of Egypt if you destroy them here in the desert? For the honor of your name, don't do it. And then there is further further illustration of Moses' intercession at the beginning of the next chapter. And I think when we are praying to God whether it's for our government or for events in China or in Iran, let us pray for the honour of God's name. Let's pray that his principles will be upheld. Let's pray that people will respect this God whom you and I love. That's encapsulated, of course, in the Lord's Prayer. May your name be hallowed or reverenced. We can pray that for the prison guards in Iran. We can pray that for the hierarchy in China who do not acknowledge God. Maybe the troubles they are going through will help them cry out to a higher authority for help. But let's bring this back down to earth for ourselves as we close. We think we have said we're not like the people that go off to Stonehenge and worship the sun at the winter solstice. My wife and I drove past Stonehenge on the shortest day of the year, visiting relatives, and the place was still heaving with people, worshipping the sun, worshipping maybe those stones at Stonehenge. No, we won't do that. But are we in danger of reshaping God to make him more convenient for our preferences? We all love to home in and hold on to those aspects of God's character which we like, his love, his faithfulness, his goodness, his desire to bless us. We're not so keen on the severity of God and the judgment of God and scripture presents us with both aspects of God's character. We've noticed that if we follow after something other than God, then it dehumanizes us and defaces his image in us. Did you get the contrast between the exquisite beauty and holiness of the tabernacle and the bodies of the people who were indulging in revelry? We are told that our bodies are to be a living sacrifice, holy, surrendered to God. Not so in this passage. Their bodies were being used for a very different purpose. So we need, as part of our worship, to dedicate our bodies to be a living sacrifice. Is God more concerned about how loudly we sing our worship here on a Sunday or our acts of worship and service tomorrow and throughout the week? So baking a cake and taking it to somebody who's sick going and helping looking after children for a hard-pressed single parent. 
these are beautiful acts of worship which God will see and take notice of. Shall we pray? Lord, we are appalled at what happened to the children of Israel, but we are also very clever at deceiving ourselves. Forgive us for the times when we have reshaped you in our minds to suit our convenience. Help us to serve you authentically. Help us to be the same on the outside as we are on the inside. Help us to honour you in the large and the small. Especially help us to honour you in the way we use our bodies. Keep us, Lord, from the errors of the children of Israel. Help us not to be stubborn and rebellious. Help us to do all that you require of us. And thank you that in so doing, you will be thrilled and we will be blessed. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.